he took up the koan Mu, and Susan gave it that fabulous title of Chapter One. <laughs> the inconceivable is most intimate. And I thought perhaps in a similar vein, I might call tonight's talk Chapter Two, <laughs> in which Mu returns with a couple of friends to stir up more trouble in the family. <laughs> because it's hard to actually leave Mu alone. And I've always loved, in fact, that for all of the innovation and experimentation and naturalization of the Dharma in this place in Australia, Susan in particular has always maintained this tradition of bringing the first barrier of practice to each person on the first night. This first barrier, which is, of course, also the last barrier and the middle barrier and the toll barrier <laughs> and the sound barrier and the age barrier and the great barrier reef. There's no end to this barrier. So honouring this move, this open gate of our practice is a kind of family custom. This phrase family custom is something I've really grown to love. It appears right through the record of the ancestors, the family custom. What is your family custom? And it's a great question because we know Zen seems to take on different shapes no matter where it begins to grow. We know that when Buddhism moved from India to China, met Taoism, it grew in its own new way. Then it moved to Tibet, had its own life there, continues to have its own life there. Korea, Japan, America, Europe, Australia, it's always changing. It's always morphing. It's never still. And yet there is a family custom. What do all these lively forms protect? Why do we actually honour certain forms of our practice? This is a very mysterious business and something I want to explore in various ways tonight, particularly with the help of our old friend, Jao Joe, who has become a bit of a favourite for Susan and I and Deborah, I know. <laughs> so he'll be here tonight too with us, almost seamlessly flowing on from last night's no. So here's a case that comes from the record of Jiao Zhou. A monk asked Jiao Zhou, I've come a long way to see you. It's not clear to me, what is your family custom? The master said, I don't talk about it to people. The monk said, why don't you talk about it to people? Jojo said, that's my family custom. <laughs> and of course, Zen is a tradition that prides itself on not relying on words or letters. We know that it's one of the famous sort of presentations of Zen, not depending on words or letters. And this is one of the gifts of Mu, this almost not quite a syllable called Mu. It's not a word, it's not a letter, it's not a syllable. What is it? So very strange. It's protecting something. It's showing us something. 
what is it showing us? Luckily, you can't Google no. <laughs> you can ask ChatGPT what is Mu, which I did, <laughs> and it doesn't help. It's a great thing that there's no way to actually grasp or lay claim on Mu. No cert four in Mu. <laughs> no promotion to Mu. It's just moo, and it's something that cannot be talked about, cannot be explained away, luckily. Instead, we commit ourselves to embodying it. That's what we're here for, to embody this mystery, embody the great matter. This is so very different to trying or straining after some kind of understanding. And when we do embody it, we actually get to see it and experience it plain as day plain as the smiles on people's faces plain as the frog sound outside plain as the way the leaves this evening as i was lying down in the grass were lit from underneath by the sunset beautiful simple astonishing so the case I just introduced before actually continues a little. I like this monk, he presses on. He says, you do not talk about it, Chao Zhou, but why do the four C's come to see you? Now the four C's, this is a way of saying the ocean of life and death. Why do all the people who live in samsara, if you like, in the ocean of life and death, in the great surging waves of struggle and suffering and torment and agony why is it that they come to see you jojo if you don't talk about it jojo said you are the sea i am not the sea and don't mistake this for some kind of judgment on the monk this is a full presentation of the whole there is nothing missing from this statement you are the sea i am not the sea ask yourself is that not me is that not my true self my true nature you are the sea i am not the sea form and emptiness emptiness and form healed into each other in this statement but the monk's confused of course he <laughs> <laughs> said it's not clear to me what is in the sea what is in the sea? You can hear the anguish in the monk's very question. What is in the sea? Why do we suffer? And then Jaojo says, I've hooked one. <laughs> and it's important to note that no Zen teacher would ever use a curled or barbed hook. Zen teachers only use a straight hook on which fish must hook themselves. This monk, through his very curiosity and wonder and questioning about what is in the sea, has hooked himself into the great line of the Dharma. And it's not lost on me too that when a fish, a fish I should say, is hooked, they're hooked right through the lips. Hooked quiet. The mouth is closed. Pierced shut, mercifully, so that perhaps they too cannot talk about it to people. 
So on another occasion, a monk also asked Zhao Zhou, what is your family custom? And the master said, since the time I left home as a young man, I have lived as an ascetic and never worked for a living. Lucky man. <laughs> you might think. But what is it to live as an ascetic? There's a footnote to this case that actually says to live as an ascetic is to take up personally the 12 dutas. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. The 12 dutas, the 12 ascetic rules. And I thought in the spirit of playfulness, which we have inscribed in our wall over there, that we might look at these 12 dutas just briefly in a Zen spirit, in our practice, which is after all a lay practice, not something that happens in a temple and not something that happens in a kind of self-denying way. After all, asceticism means something like severe self-discipline that avoids all forms of indulgence. I think that would be hard to market in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I'm offering you some of that. <laughs> so let's have a look at these stutas, just touch on them lightly, playfully, and just hear and feel into how they perhaps might resonate in your life. So I'll read them briefly first and then just step through. They go like this. We are to be only wearing abandoned robes, only wearing a robe made of three pieces, collecting food in a single bowl, collecting food without skipping houses, eating only at one sitting spot, eating everything within the bowl, not accepting extra food after refusing it, remaining in the forest, remaining beneath the tree, remaining on the bare earth without shelter, remaining among charnels and resting only at the allotted spot. Now, I'm not expecting anybody to remember those, but you may have noticed that there are three broad, beautiful sections there featuring the robe, the bowl and the place of practice. So I want to touch into these beautiful, poignant touchstones of our family custom. So let's start with the robe, which is, of course, the robe of liberation, the one that we celebrate every single morning of session. We actually all declare that I wear it. I wear this robe. I'm wearing it right now. And what a lucky thing that is. The literal translation of this particular dutta is pamsakula, which means to arrive such as the dust. This is actually a very beautiful expression, to arrive such as the dust, just as we are, just as we are. And remember, we're discovering an abandoned robe, not a robe that's been brought with us, not some sort of special robe, but a robe that we find just like this, this very robe. And it's a robe that we're told is made of three pieces. And perhaps it might be valuable to take this up as Buddha Dharma Sangha, three treasures, Buddha Dharma Sangha. That's what this robe's made of. 
I noticed that Bodhidharma over there has three pieces. I'm pretty oh. sure. <laughs> Good boy. <laughs> or it might be great faith, great doubt, great perseverance. That's a good robe too. So we're here not to build a robe, not to sew our own robe, but to find the robe that we already wear. And what a lucky find that is when it does happen. And we're also told that we have a bowl in these dutas, a single bowl into which everything we are offered is received. To be bowl shaped is our practice. To be bowl shaped, made of the earth, open to the sky. This is to be empty, empty, and yet everything fits into this bowl. I love that these bowls, of course, were the mendicant bowls, the bowls that people in China and also in Japan would use on their arms rounds as they would go about the village. And let's have a listen to Ryokan. We're all, I think, familiar with Ryokan, the great 18th century poet. Let's have a listen to how he feels his arms bowl, which he was so skillful at doing. <laughs> he says this, Green spring, start of the second month, colours of things turning fresh and new. At this time, I take my begging bowl and high spirits tramp the streets of town. Little boys suddenly spot me, delightedly come crowding around, descend on me at the temple gate, dragging on my arms, making steps slow. I set my bowl on top of a white stone hang my arms bag on a green tree limb. Here we fight a hundred grasses. Here we hit the tamari ball. I'll hit, you do the singing. Now I'll sing, your turn to hit. We hit it going, we hit it coming, never knowing how the hours fly. Passers by turn, look at me and laugh. What makes you act like this? I duck my head. Don't answer them. I could speak, but what's the use? You want to know what's in my heart from the beginning? Just this, just this. And let's not pretend that it was like that every time for Rio Khan. There are plenty of stories where he was returning home with nothing in that begging bowl. And hence, perhaps, the dutta that talks to us about not <coughs> skipping houses. Perhaps you might take this as, don't skip challenges, don't go picking and choosing. I'm sure Ryokan knew the houses that would serve more gruel than the other houses. But to skip those houses would be skipping those encounters, skipping that opportunity to practice the dana paramita, the great paramita of giving. Ryokan's giving, people give in return. It's mutual, mutual all the way through. But it's so easy to want to skip any of the challenges, skip the various houses in our own life. We all know this. We've all attempted to <laughs> leap across difficulty. If I can just leapfrog that particular difficulty, things will be much easier. But then the houses seem to follow us around. 
<laughs> which becomes very weighty indeed. So letting the village fill your bowl, whatever the village is, whoever's in it, this is our practice. And once the bowl is full with whatever has been offered, then it is time to eat, which means sitting down or practicing zazen as we do in our meal sutras, this combination of deep zazen and receiving food. How beautiful that is, how simple. Has its own elegance, in fact. The color, the steam, the sounds of the clacking bowls. This is all offerings to us, which we can just receive with love, in fact. But I do like that in this dutta, there's also an injunction here that the practitioners of this dutta must eat without trying to make the contents of their bowl disgusting. <laughs> and we laugh because we all know what it's like to make the contents of our bowl disgusting. <laughs> but why do that? What a silly thing to do to make this world disgusting. Why not drink it down, receive it with that love that I'm talking about? It's all for our benefit. We don't need to go poisoning it with our judgments or our repulsion or our refusal. It does make it disgusting. So the third section of these duttas was the place of practice. I've called it that. We're advised to remain in the forest and there's no mistaking the fact that Zen loves to sit in forests, <laughs> loves to sit in the bush, loves to be in the natural world. Wherever we go, it is just such good company to be with trees, to be with the open sky, to be with creeks, to be with birds, to be with the animals, just as they are. I notice that all of these things come close in session. The trees come closer, the leaves come, the sky comes closer, animals certainly come closer, everything comes closer. To live in the forest, according to this dutta, actually means the fact to remain beneath a tree. It also has the sense of rootedness, of being deeply rooted in the Dharma. So to remain beneath the tree is not just to be hovering beneath the tree, but actually to have our toes and our hands and our very being planted like a tree, planted in the Dharma, brought to life as the Dharma, a full expression of the whole. Now, of course, this means that, yes, the natural world is a wonderful place to be, but where does the natural world actually end? Does it end at the fence <laughs> up there? Anybody who has walked out in the breaks and gone beyond that fence knows that the natural world keeps going, not just along the road, but it is the road. It is the power lines. It is the signs. It does turn around the corner. It is Barry. 
It is the ocean. It goes all the way to Sydney. It crosses the entire continent. There is no place that is not our place of practice. So let us accept this place of practice, no matter where it is and no matter what it brings. And this is very much underscored by the fact that we're asked to remain among charnels. This is like the charnel grounds. It means something like remain with the dead, remain with the remains of the dead. The memories, the sorrows, the griefs, the tears, not pushing any of these things away either. This is the forest too, absolutely natural. And this is what, is what it means or what it's pointing to when it talks to live it talks about living in an unsheltered place. I want to read a poem too that touches on this unsheltered life. And this is by a friend of mine, in fact, in Castlemaine, Rachel Winona Guy, who is an excellent poet. And this poem is called Whenever It Rains. Whenever it rains, I think of dead things. The broken slick of cormorant feather disarticulated wing snagged on sea rack constellations of smashed snails after downpour my old departed dog buried somewhere in an unknown field i think of the dead like hail battered daisies knocked down and becoming more the substance of bruise in nature a friend visits we talk of our fear of death. She begins to cry. Tears streak her cheeks. She blinks her dark eyes. The same kind of startle I've seen in the eyes of other living things. I do not say consoling words. They hint at condescension. Instead, I hug her. Say, I'm glad you were born outside the rain. I hope you can hear how this is somebody sitting in their allotted spot, meeting what walks in through their door. We are, each of us, sitting in our allotted spot. So greet what comes in through your door. So on another occasion, another monk asked Jiao Zhou, I wonder if Jiao Zhou is getting sick of this by now. <laughs> what is your family? And the master said, having nothing inside, seeking for nothing outside. Empty, empty, empty. Having nothing, needing nothing. I wonder if you can feel how vast and empty and all-inclusive this is. Again, a monk asked, what is your family custom? And Jiao said, even though the petition screen is down, its framework is still intact. In other words, even though there is no barrier between me and you, there is still me and you. 
the framework is still intact. We are this framework. We are holding each other up. There is no petition screen. There's no glass. There's no barrier between us. It was just you and me, just us, just each one of us as we are. And there is also, of course, no barrier between us and those that came before. No barrier between us and those that will come. Past, present and future have no line between them. So these ancestors, these ancestors that we venerate in our tradition are here too. They are with us here, seamlessly so. In fact, a monk once asked Zhao Zhao again, what are the words of the ancients? And of course, this monk being one of the members of Zhao Zhao's assembly would know that Zhao Zhao does not like talking <coughs> about such things. What are the words of the ancients? And Zhao Zhao just said, listen carefully. Listen carefully. <laughs> what do you hear when you listen carefully? Can you hear the ancients right now? Can you hear their words? The words that don't lie. The words that never miss a beat, that never miss this moment. The words that are perfectly shaped for this perfect moment. Can you hear them? Will you let them in? Because after all, listening deeply, listening carefully, listening carefully to these ancients, to these ancients that just keep speaking, is what draws us into hearing the cries of the world. As Susan mentioned last night, we have Kuan Yin on our altar up here, the one who cannot but hear the cries of the world, the one who can't shut them out, wouldn't want to shut them out, because those cries are the cries of the ancients and of all beings. They are the cries of your own heart. What could possibly make you want to shut those out? What could make you possibly think that they weren't for you and only for you? Thinking of the ancestors, there is the great record of the transmission of the lamp, which is a little bit like the family history, if you like, of our way. Multi-volume work of encounters, stories, koans, poems, all sorts of things. A great treasury, actually, of our family way. There was a case in there where a monk asked Master Liu Jing, what is the venerable family custom that you keep? And Liu Zheng said, facing the universe with the whole body, who is going to stick the neck out? <laughs> this is a beautiful case. <laughs> because after all, we're here to face the universe with our whole body, to embody it fully, completely. But what do we notice? What necks do we find are stuck out? What vulnerable necks? Remember how vulnerable 
her neck is? Will we notice who sticks their neck out? And will we in turn stick our own necks out to save the many beings, to be available for them too? This goes to the core of our responsive practice. If we cannot hear those cries of the world, if we don't find that our neck is already stuck out, that we haven't already put our life on the line, what are we doing here? What on earth would this practice be for if it wasn't for being with, listening to, saving, becoming, treasuring the many beings? Now, of course, our Sangha has done magnificent work in this front. I'm thinking actually, Lizzie, of the It's Alive Dharma group and how much <coughs> our Sangha members have stuck their neck out for the benefit of all beings. I don't need to go into how troubled our world is right now, how many necks are on the line ready to be chopped right off. But I think of these bodhisattvas in our Sangha, whether it's Bob and Inez doing the magic basin, <laughs> or Lizzie with land care, Rhea looking after, I think, just about every river in Australia. <laughs> Susan Woodward with her podcasts and stopping a trespassing airport being built near her in the States. And Sheridan too with her Red Rebels. And Ross, of course, who is synonymous with Kunyani. Mm -hmm. Ross and the whole mountains and rivers and group, synonymous with that mountain. There is so much beautiful, loving work being done by the Sangha. So many people sticking their neck out. And this too is our family custom. Notice that this was a reply in direct response to what is your family custom? Well, good on us. We're doing it. Zen Open Circle, go. <laughs> so I'd like to finish actually by touching on another case. Well, it's actually more an encounter that I think does a lovely job of just drawing some of this together. Two comes from this record of the transmission of the lamp. And this case features a fellow that I'm not familiar with before, and it's very short and very strange and very beautiful. This fellow's name is Zhang Zhao, and it says that Zhang Zhao, watching a monk eating, raised his own bowl in the palm of his hand and said, forever family, forever family. The monk said, is this the Venerable Sir's practice? What an interesting move. Forever family. What does this say to you about past, present and future meeting here? What does this say to you about each face in this room and online gathered into this one place? We're here forever. We are forever family. As we are with the frogs, as we are with the insects, as we are with the birds, 
There's no one left out of this family. In fact, Session often feels to me like a great family reunion. <laughs> we all come together to celebrate this beautiful fact of just being together and knowing we're together and that we've never been apart. Can never be apart. Our family tree branches out and leaves nothing untouched. So how lucky, how lucky to be living in such a place as this, where whether it's the roots or the branches or the trunk or the stem, or whether it's you or me, we are forever family. Thank you for your trouble. <laughs>